Masha Gessen is the author of several, and I mean several books, uh, one every year, it seems. She is recently the author of The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. Before that, The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin. And in there, though, she wrote about the Tsarnaev brothers in a book called The Brothers. And having read that book and having listened to that book, there are resonances there and the coverage of that story with what we're hearing today about this horrible shooting in Las Vegas. So I wanted to ask Masha some questions. Thank you for joining me, Masha. Thank you for having me. In the immediate aftermath of a uh, horrible tragedy, and of course, the alleged, I guess we say, gunman here took his own life. Up in Boston, there was that manhunt, and of course, one of the brothers died, one didn't. But there was such a urge to get as much information as possible. And then, after three or four days, most of what was reported gets calcified and solidified, but it's not always accurate. Is that how these things usually go, or at least in the case that you investigated, is that how it went? I think that's that's true. In fact, actually, maybe the most interesting case from this perspective is the pulse shooting in in Florida. We have sort of particular shelves for these kinds of attacks. And you will will probably notice that I'm trying not to use the word terrorist, because I don't think it's particularly useful. But it's very difficult to say what kinds of attacks I mean, if I'm not using the word terrorist, right? So but basically, um, there's the sort of terrorist, which which implies Islamic radical implies connected to some real or imaginary organization or real or imaginary connection to, you know, ISIS or Al Qaeda. That's one shelf. And the sort of the lone wolf white man, who some people would argue also sh- uh, you know, should be called a terrorist, I don't actually think so, on the other shelf. And then if there's some complication, we have no idea what to do with it. And that was that was the that was the case with the gunman in Florida, right? Because right. because on the one hand he he made that nine one one call in which he said he was uh, he was a member of ISIS, and then on the other hand it then emerged that maybe he was a self hating homosexual. And that was why he did the shooting. And how do you recon- reconcile those? I don't think it's very complicated, right? We just have to kind of sort of give up the categories. Yeah, it doesn't. Uh, first of all, specifically about that, they don't seem irreconcilable at all. That both things can certainly be true. Not at all. Yeah, but yeah. you know, profound misery drives people to yeah. do incredibly stupid and cruel things and to try to attach themselves to something big and glorious. Right. And another case, again, in this in this category, mass shooting category, Columbine, and there's another case where, of course, we have the human need to ask that question and get a satisfactory answer. How did it happen? And the immediate answers were things like bullying and the trench coat mafia. And we probably, most people probably still think that's true. But subsequent reporting shows that it was a Leopold and Loeb situation and one of those shooters really strung the other one or, or influenced the other one, but he was actually quite popular and there wasn't a lot of bullying going on. So again, we have, we want answers. We take about four days to process the information and then it's set. And, and there could be problems with that in terms of in your case with the Tsarnaevs in terms of the trial, but in terms of like understanding human nature and looking out for it the next time. Actually, looking out for it the next time is exactly what drives the process that you're talking about, mm-hmm. right? Because there's a natural human desire to reassure ourselves that it's not going to happen to us. So if you can figure out what happened, again, if you can if you can wrap your mind around it, and this works with any kind of terror, including, you know, state terror, which is something I've written about much more, right? But like, during the Soviet state terror, people kept making up fictions about why, you know, their next door neighbor got arrested, why so-and-so got executed. They were guilty of something, maybe not the thing that they were accused of, but something else, right? And 
And as soon as we stumble on an explanation, however incorrect it actually is, because most of these things actually defy explanation, that's what that's what makes them so terrifying, mm-hmm. right? As soon as we find an explanation, we set it aside and we're, we're assured it's not going to happen to us. Yeah, and mostly the quality of the explanations is they don't ever change our minds. <laughs> like No matter what the explanation is, oh, yeah, that's what I thought all along. An explanation that changes our minds is not a satisfactory explanation. You know, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't calm us down. So in the Sarnayev case, people always ask you since you wrote the book about them, well, how they either snap or how they go from this normal-seeming kids to terrorists, how they get radicalized. And they're going to be asking that about this guy, too, and you have a good answer for that, which is right. no answer. <laughs> which is no answer, right. You know, we have, in the same way that we have these sort of calming explanations, we have this radicalization narrative, right? And the radicalization narrative serves a very important psychological function, which is that, you know, we imagine that there is something really huge, right, like some great organization that has a very specific process for inducting somebody and then indoctrinating them and then finally, you know, taking them through sort of the ideological process and then finally turning them into a really scary, violent person. fact of the matter is that it's not quite so orderly. It's not linear. A lot of the time, the affiliation with an organization like ISIS is an afterthought. Right? Uh, so the the rage the desire, needs direction in other right, words. Yeah. Right. The rage is there. Yeah. The desire to act is there. Yeah. And then you can pin it on something that's bigger than you, which has a lot of its own advantages of its own, right? But for us, we just have to sort of step back from the from the radicalization explanation. You know, the same way that we don't ask, you know, how come most people who have terrible things happen to them, you know, don't murder their relatives. Most abused wives don't murder their husbands. Some do. Most jealous husbands don't murder their cheating wives. But a couple will. Right. It doesn't mean that every time there is a case of rage, it leads to violence. But it also doesn't mean that when rage turns violent and absolutely horrifying, it's inexplicable. Yes, because the experts with Sarnayev, probably with this guy, will say, well, here's the shared qualities that he he has with whatever kind of shooter he turns out to be, with the uh, terrorists that the uh, Sarnayevs turned out to be. You know, loners, um, felt disaffected, downwardly mobile. You, you list these things and, and then you say, whoa, those are warning flags. And there are millions of people like that. That's right. And today on the news, uh, someone helpfully pointed out that 80% of the mass shooters before their mass shooting expressed some version of rage or ideation to someone else. And you, you look at that and you say, oh, my God, we could stop them next time. Left unsaid is that probably 80,000 people who expressed ideation or rage never went through with a mass shooting. And that's true, actually, also of extreme ideologies, right? The whole sort of system that the FBI has set up for tracking people who subscribe to extreme ideologies, radical Islam, is useless in very much the same way. Most people who have extreme views, including views that support violence, will never do anything violent in their lives, right? It's not actually a predictor of terrorist behavior. You know, what is a predictor of terrorist behavior? Is domestic violence. Yeah. Right. With domestic violence, we kind of understand that's escalating violence and it yeah. can escalate, you know, really radically, like in, 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 in cases of terrorism or somewhat less radically, but it will escalate. Right. That's actually a p- very powerful argument for law enforcement intervention in cases of domestic violence. OK, so you mentioned that people have these this rage and sometimes they find the a- ideology that matches up with their rage and they say, I did it because of ISIS or whatever. So then do you think that there's nothing to the argument that say, uh, let's be blunt here, President Trump is giving permission structure to rage 
on the other hand, we could say, you know, people, the alt-right pointed to Steve Scalise's shooter and said, well, the, the left is giving permission to rage. Now, this really is something to reconcile. How do you uh, square the fact that there does seem to be a raising temperature in society with the fact that some people are going to take, you know, any kind of excuse, glom onto it and assign their rage to that? Look, I mean, I think there's actually something going on with Trump that is not necessarily and probably isn't at all connected to this, the, the, uh, the shooting in Las Vegas. Right? The shooting in Las Vegas seems to fall into a basic American pattern of, of mass shootings, which is a peculiarly American problem. Yeah. And that uh, I think it's absurd to argue that it's not connected to the gun culture in this country, right? But I don't know that it's necessarily directly connected to Trump. Right. right. It, it obviously the McDonald's shooting preceded Trump. The Lubbock's Cafeteria shooting preceded Trump. He was pretty, hosting pretty a reality much. show during Virginia Tech. Agreed. Right. What I think he 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 has done is he's um, he's actually made some motions toward delegating violence, right? And this fits in right. an entirely different pattern of autocratic leaders who delegate sort of extra-legal violence to people who have the opportunity to commit crimes. And what's communicated to them is that there will be perhaps broad impunity or perhaps there will be sort of less scrutiny than there would otherwise be. We've seen that a lot with Putin. You know, most, most of the murders that we think of as political murders that happen under Putin were actually outsourced. You know, they weren't carried out by the Kremlin. They weren't even necessarily ordered by the Kremlin. It was communicated that it is possible to do it. Look at Duterte. He's done the, the, uh, the opposite. It's sort of instead of uh, sending out coded messages, he sent out very clear yeah. messages and so basically communicated, you, if you kill people because you believe them to be drug dealers, you will have absolute impunity. Going so far as to claiming to have committed some of these murders or he would say carried out some of these executions himself. And exactly. that might, that, he might be lying about that, by the way. Right. But it communicates that this is a yeah. good thing. It's mm-hmm. a good thing for the, for the country. It has some, you know, it's circumscribed. It's not like any kind of violence that's licensed. But it's a particular kind of violence that, uh, that, the, uh, that the leader delegates. So I think that, that some of the stuff that, that, that Trump has said sort of in the wake, uh, both actually during his rallies, in the wake of, of Charlottesville, and even I'd say about the NFL, you know, have verged on delegating violence. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are probably points of convergence between that and, uh, and and mass shootings. And of course, what makes it really dangerous is just the sheer number of guns and militia, militia or, like organizations that exist in this country. I mean, because we can go from zeros to six, 60 here really fast with this communication delegating violence, considering that there are armed people out there. Yeah, matching a tinderbox. Wait, so is that the, the idea of delegating violence, which... Literally, I mean, it's a subject of a lawsuit, him saying, I'll, I'll defend you if you rough up one of these protesters, but also is more symbolic. Is that much different from just the simple notion, oh, he riles people up? Well, I think it's more specific. Uh, you know, there isn't necessarily a meaningful distinction between rallying people up and, and delegating violence. But I think that when I talk about delegating violence, it's an actual political mechanism. Yeah. Right. It's a political mechanism that's been used by autocratic leaders, certainly for decades, you know, certainly going back to you know the brown shirts. Just naming it that, I think, is, is helpful in terms of analyzing it and, and wrapping our minds around, you know, how to resist it. It's easy for us in a democracy to look at an autocracy and say, well, they oppress their people. And therefore, it's easy to imagine that people will actually be affected and enraged and uh, want to lash out. Maybe in a democracy, it seems a lot harder to do, affect a populace 
so that they're at a point of being enraged or wanting to act out or wanting to lash out. Is it? You know, I think I think that's there's a fuzzier border there than than perhaps we realize. And um, agencies often ceded voluntarily, even in such in extreme situations like in the Soviet Union, where there was actual state terror. It would not necessarily have been possible to institute state terror without a social contract, you know, a broad social contract with with society. There was there was resistance, but there was also an incredible amount of support, and an incredible desire to sort of to cede power, right? To cede freedom, the freedom that had become unbearable, to hand it all over to, to a leader. I think we're in a pretty dangerous spot in this country where there's a large number of people who would like to cede agency because life has become so frightening and unpredictable and just difficult. Yeah. And that maybe can apply to no matter what the motivation of any shooter is, just ceding agency. The guy who shot up the uh, congressional Republican baseball game would fall into that category too, even though his politics are opposite of uh, a white nationalist, let's say. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's It's a little bit of a logical leap sort of from ceding agency to to actually taking up arms. I yeah. mean, uh, that's kind of claiming extreme agency, but it's also, you know, it's just jumping into the abyss. So in that sense, I guess there's a similarity. Masha Gassin is the author of The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, which we will be talking about in full shortly, but not today, because we need to talk about this. Thank you, Masha. Thank you.